0: Hello, my name is Garrison Lovely, and I'm not that interesting, but this is the most interesting people I know. Conversations on science, ethics, and politics. David Shore is a data scientist and the former head of political data science for Civis Analytics, a Democratic think tank. In 2012, he developed the Obama campaign's in-house election forecasting system, which accurately predicted the outcome to within a point in every state. David was the subject of some controversy this summer when he was fired following his tweeting of an academic paper. The paper argued that violent protests decrease Democratic presidential vote share, while nonviolent protests increase vote share. Unfortunately, David is not at liberty to discuss the details of this incident, which is an excellent example of what happens when employment protections don't exist. I also want to state upfront that the focus of this episode is on how to improve the electoral prospects of Democrats, which is David's expertise. I have many disagreements with the Democratic Party and its leaders, and there are many pathways to power beyond electoral politics. But America's political institutions are extremely powerful, and ensuring that they are controlled by the non-death cult party is important. In this episode, we discuss what happened in the 2020 election, why the Electoral College is biased towards Republicans, efforts to combat structural bias against the Democratic Party, why the polls were wrong again, and why they'll be very hard to fix, why Bernie would have won in 2016 but may not have won in 2020, how Democratic staffers and left-wing activists are massively unrepresentative of the American public the electoral obstacles to passing Medicare for all and how to make the policy more politically popular, policies that combat inequality without raising taxes, whether Democrats actually want to win, why Democrats need the working class to win power, why good politicians stay relentlessly on message, how we can move voters towards policy positions we think are just, why Democrats should talk more about issues and less about values, what we can learn from the growth in support for same-sex marriage, and the importance of getting media on your side. This is David Shore. David, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, great to talk to you. It's uh, been a little while. Uh, a lot has happened since uh, we last spoke, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Most notably the 2020 election, which is uh, what you've been spending a lot of your time thinking about and talking about. Uh, can you just start off with like summarizing? You know, Obviously, the top line is Biden won. The Democrats lost seats in the House. They did not win the Senate and are very unlikely to the special elections in uh, Georgia. And this was a disappointing result for Democrats. But could you just take us one level deeper than that and just like summarize where things are?
1: Yeah, sure. So I I think the top level way to describe what happened is basically at a uh, college educated Democrats swung toward, uh, so college educated voters swung toward Democrats uh working class white voters were basically exactly where they were in 2016. not much change And then non-white voters swung against us uh, African Americans by probably like two or three percent Hispanic voters by will take us some time to know, but probably like 11 or twelve percent. And then you know with Asian voters it will take longer to know, but it seems like there were some very large declines in the Vietnamese community and probably a couple of others. Uh, and that that was the story in terms of you know changes in support in terms of change in turnout, uh, there was overall a pretty large increase in turnout, though it was roughly equal on both sides. And, uh, you know, African-American uh, African American turnout also increased, but not nearly by as much. And so as a result, the African-American share of the electorate likely declined. And so that's what happened on the support and turnout story. And in terms of surprises, you know, in terms of what ha- why were things different than what we expected going in, I think the polls told a pretty clear story you know, not just that you know Democrats were going to do, I'd say, on average, three percent better than they did than they than they ultimately did, but also they told a story that we were going to see this large increase in support among non-college educated whites and this kind of decrease in education polarization, kind of like a snapback to how things were in 2012, and that didn't materialize. You know, the the gap between college educated voters and non-college educated uh, voters grew, and as a result the bias of the electoral college also grew pretty substantially from its already pretty high level in
0: uh, 2016. Got it. And so, yeah, the electoral college bias is like less obvious to me than the Senate bias. Like the Senate is biased towards smaller population states because they get the same number of senators. Um, Why does the electoral by electoral college bias towards Republicans? It isn't inherently biased
1: toward Republicans in the same way that uh, the Senate is. Uh, but if, if you go back, you know, for the past, you know, 50 years, the Electoral College used to be fairly unbiased. It actually slightly benefited Democrats. I think if uh, Barack Obama could have gotten about 50, you know, maybe 50, 492 50, percent of the vote, or something, and still ended up winning. And it was basically the story of he was still doing well enough with non college educated whites, so that he was doing well in the Midwest. But he was capturing enough college educated whites, so that he would, you know, he could still win in places like Virginia and Colorado. And you know, you go to twenty sixteen, and suddenly, suddenly, what happens is that the Midwest kind of falls off and becomes less competitive, uh, and and that. It's kind of a cruel randomness of fate. Uh, it just happens to be that the electoral college benefits states that happen to be large uh, and that happen to be reasonably close. And there used to be a bunch of, really, the story of American politics. I think even for the last hundred years, is that the Midwest generally was pretty close and also had a bunch of uh, had a bunch of uh, people, uh, you know, because of industrialization and all that other stuff. And, uh, basically what happened was you took all of these states that used to be 50, 50 states, or even 51, 50 or 52 states. And then they suddenly became like 47 or 48% states because these places in the Midwest had a lot of non-college educated whites and crucially had non-college educated whites who generally voted for us at higher rates than like non-college whites in say the South. And so it's kind of random. I think that it being random doesn't mean it's going to go away anytime soon. Like people will say, Oh, well, if we win the Sunbelt, uh, you can flip Arizona and you can flip, uh, you know, you, uh, you can, maybe you can flip Texas, but it doesn't really, the math doesn't really work out. Like, and, and we saw that like this cycle as the, As education polarization increased, so did the bias in the electoral college. If things get to a point where we can actually flip Texas, then maybe one day things will be a little bit more even. But, you know, there's just this real dynamic that uh, you end up with a lot of, I'll put it a different way. You know, the way that a city becomes blue is to just have lots of cities, because people who live in cities are blue. And, you know, what you have in the Midwest was you had a you had basically these states that were you, that had these cities, but then also had these large, uh, large rural populations that didn't, you know, dominate the state. And you know, the problem that we're facing is that now we're doing so well with people in cities that the additional education polarization hurt. You know, all of those extra votes go to these places that were already winning, and not to the places that are close. And that's just kind of the reason why the Electoral College will kind of continue to be biased. We've done some simulations, some long-term simulations, and, you know, there's really, unless we see some big coalition changes, I'd I'd expect this bias to be persistent over the next decade.
0: Yeah, and there's this um, organization or this movement to try and get rid of the Electoral College by getting states to just honor the results of the popular vote. Um, I think it's like the national voter interstate compactors, or something like this. Um, do you have any faith in that? Do you have any confidence that there will be other ways to get rid of the Electoral College anytime soon?
1: Yeah, you know, the big problem here
0: is that, you know,
1: you have to pass these measures as uh, in legislatures. And, you know, due to us doing really badly in 2010, all of these state legislative maps are heavily, heavily gerrymandered. Uh, and so if you look at places like North Carolina or Michigan or Wisconsin, you know, Democrats actually win the popular vote, not just, you know, in these states presidentially, but also in this, on a state legislative level. But in Wisconsin or Michigan, you can get 53% of the vote. That's what happened in 2018 and still only get maybe like 38% of the seats. And so that's, um, that's really hard. Uh, originally, uh, the plan I think was that we were supposed to have a trifecta in the house and then force uh, force democracy uh, in these in these states. And you know the path to that it still exists, but it's a lot less clear. And uh, so that's pretty bad. But there are still some paths that you could take that are a little bit more unorthodox. You know, one example is people talk a lot about the National Popular Vote Compact. You know, which is basically the way that. It's structured as it says, if if enough people sign this compact and you get to 270 electoral votes, then we will assign our electoral votes as the popular vote to whoever wins the popular vote. But you could do a unilateral popular vote compact, which is you could, for example, pass a ballot measure in Ohio uh, and then say whoever, uh, whoever wins the popular vote nationally is just who Ohio gives its... Uh, gives its popular vote total to. And if you did something like that, then then you'd effectively have a national popular vote because the electoral college margin is largely going to be, is probably going to be smaller than whoever, however Ohio votes. And so that's something I think, you know, we should really try, you know, and we've pulled it. It's something that looks like it's about even and has a decent, you know, has a reasonable chance of passing. And so, you know, going into two years from now, a lot, it would, it's definitely something, that's worth trying. You could do that in but the goal would be to pass this unilateral popular state compact in large states where ballot measures are possible. Um Florida and Ohio uh, and Michigan uh, would probably be the best best candidates there. Uh, and if you did that, um then you can kind of circumvent these legislatures. Um, but obviously, the chance of you know any any particular thing happening in politics is small, but that's the that's the thing I'm most optimistic about. But I think realistically, you know, we have to come to terms with this reality that we need to get 52% of the vote or even more. Like this time, 52% was our win number. You know, we got about 52.3% of the two-party vote. And if we had gotten 52, we would have probably lost. Um, And so, you know, that has very... Scary implications. I think the two paths are either one, you need to set up a party that will get 52% of the vote all the time. And, you know, that involves ideological compromises and branding compromises and a bunch of other things. Or two, you have to shift your coalition so that you do better with working class voters and less well with college educated voters holding support constant. And, you know, just structurally, that's really imperative if you want to be in a position to pass laws.
0: Yeah, I want to come back to the structural impediments to Democrats taking power uh, in in a bit um, because they're pretty daunting um, and really do define what is possible and and really what isn't possible uh, in American politics right now. Um, But first, I want to talk a bit about polling. Um, So this is a story that has been uh, pretty well covered at this point. You've talked about it a bunch, but the polls were really, really wrong again, um, similar to how they were wrong in 2016. It mattered less because Biden just did better than Hillary Clinton did, but uh, they were still really, really wrong. And like, people were surprised on election night. Can you talk about like where the polls were the most wrong and your theory as to why they were?
1: Yeah, I think there's, there's really two stories. There's two different, you know, the polls were very wrong. And so I think there's two different uh, stories of error uh, mm-hmm. in terms of why. Uh, I think the first is that, you know, in 2016, just going back in time a little bit, uh, the polls were, were wrong. Uh, And the way in which they were wrong is that it wasn't the national polls were wrong. You know, the national polls said Hillary Clinton would win by three and she won by two. So it sounds pretty good. But on a state by state basis, they overestimated support in kind of these blue coastal states like California. And they underestimated support in uh, for Republicans. I'm I'm being I'm, I'm flipping the numbers here. But basically, Democrats did much worse than expected in kind of these Midwestern, States that have a lot of non-college educated white voters. and they and Democrats uh, did better than expected in kind of these coastal places that have a lot of college educated voters. And you know, these effects were really large. I think like the average polling miss in the Midwest was something like six or seven points. And that's the reason why you know Donald Trump won and why it was a surprise was that, you know, the overall vote level was basically where people thought it would be. But then the vote distribution was skewed in a way that, like the uh, bias of the Electoral College was a lot larger than anyone was expecting. And, you know, that's, that's why, you know, Hillary Clinton lost despite getting 51.1% of the two-party vote. So if you flash forward to, you know, 2018, the same thing happened again. People didn't notice because Democrats won, but there were a bunch of races that were much, much closer than people expected they would be in places like West Virginia and places like Michigan and places like Ohio in West Virginia, for example, the public polls said Manchin would win by 12 and he only, he only ended up winning by one or two points. And, uh, and so now you go to 2020 and you see the same pattern of error, basically uh, that the polls were off by the most in Wisconsin. There were polls showing uh, Democrats ahead by, you know, something like 12 points or 13 points in Wisconsin, which is clearly not what happened. And, at the same, but on top of that, there was a different error, which is that in twenty sixteen the national polls were about right, and in twenty twenty the national polls were not right. You know, they were off by something like three percent in support and six percent in margin, um, which is actually, you know, by national, it's actually a pretty big this even by even by historical standards. not like unheard of, but definitely like a one and a half standard deviation event. Um, and so the question is, why did we see these two different phenomena? First, why are there these why is there this state-specific pattern of error where we do worse than expected in the Midwest and better than expected on the coast? And then why was why were the national polls wrong this time when they weren't wrong in 2018 or 2016? And so, you know, the first one, I think centers around this idea of social trust. So, you know, in the GSS, it's like this big government survey that gets about a 70 uh, or... Uh, I think it's a 70% response rate. And the reason is that they they spend thousands of dollars per respondents. They like literally pay someone to like go to your door and they offer you a hundred bucks and they get up to like 70%. Telephone surveys have like a 1% response rate. It's much lower. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they find, they ask this question, which is, do you think that people can generally be trusted or do you think people should keep to themselves? And, you know, it's interesting about that question. I think it's something like 40% of people say that people can be trusted. And that number used to be something like Sixty percent, I think, uh, and so there's been like a twenty point decline in the last thirty to forty years in terms of what percentage of people say that people can be trusted, and that's sociologically, I think, very concerning. You know, because this isn't about faith in government; this is like people literally just don't trust the people around them, and this is getting worse and worse every year. So that's that seems bad, you know, to the broader social democratic project. But uh, you know, the re- but from a measurement perspective, this is a, this is a real issue because people who Trust the people around them are kind of unsurprisingly a lot more likely to pick up the phone than people who don't. And so that bias has been around for a really long time, but it used to not matter because it used to be that, you know, among non college educated whites, non college whites who trust the people around them voted about the same as non college whites who don't trust the people around them. But when you get to 2016, there was this real change in coalitions where non-college educated whites who don't trust the people around them swung toward Trump by about nine points. And the ones who do trust the people around them actually swung toward, toward Clinton by like one or 2%. And uh, so this really gets at the problem. You know, It wasn't that, we, that these pollsters weren't waiting by education or didn't have the right number of non-college whites. It's, th- it's that they were talking to the wrong non-college educated whites. And there's you know, different ways you can cut this up, um, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, there are big occupation differences, you know, between people who pick, non-college whites who pick up the phone and people who don't. There's a, like receptionists, for example, are substantially more likely to respond and swung toward Clinton, while people who work in factories or people who are truck drivers are less likely to answer the phone and swung toward Trump. You can divide things by racial resentment, where high, resen- high resentment, uh, high racial resentment whites, were. Uh, less likely to answer and swung toward Trump uh, or you could even you know do it in terms of openness to new experiences um, uh, there's a lot of different correlated ways to cut it but the point was that there's this there was this kind of silent grumpy majority of folks who weren't being captured in these surveys uh, and paint, painted an overall rosy picture and that also caused problems from a messaging perspective you know the Hillary Clinton campaign when they were testing, should we pursue economic populism? Should we talk about economic issues? Or should we stand up for the brand of America? And should we attack Donald Trump for, you know, going again for being divisive and racist and sexist? And the people who they talked to, the people who answered the surveys, loved the second message. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think that, as opposed to, like, some kind of narrow Marxist, you know, not wanting to upset their donor class, is, like, the mechanical reason why the Clinton campaign went ahead and did this, like, you know, non-economic focused messaging that was like such a departure from how Obama had run his campaign. Uh, and so it really shows the importance of measurement. Uh, you know, getting it right is very important. So that's that's one piece. Um, that's how you produce the state, state-specific polling error. But the question is, why were the national polls wrong this time? And I think the answer is that the... Uh, you know, when we, the cool thing about how we do surveys is that we can, we ask people for their information, we can match them back to voter files. And so what we did was we looked at what percentage of people, of survey respondents, voted in the Democratic primary, basically by month. And you could see that it was a pretty, it stayed at a pretty constant, like 11 or 12%, uh, you know, for most of the last two years. And then in March, it suddenly jumps to something like 16 or 17%. And I think that there's a very clear story there of lockdown happens and there were very clear partisan differences in terms of how much people were respecting lockdown. You can see that in terms of cell phone mobility data. And uh, Democrats were cooped up inside. And so they started answering surveys uh, at a much higher rate. Like we saw this personally, like our response rates um, doubled uh, and web panel companies had record volume. And so there were just... And it's funny because I think when we talk about non-response bias and we're like, oh, it's it's bad that response rates have gone down. This is a case where response rates went up, but they only went up among Democrats. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, it created this bias that like traditional polling methods have a lot of trouble accounting for. And uh, you know, I, I think that's most of the story for why there was this uniform 3% swing.
0: Yeah. And, and this is like a pretty difficult problem to solve, right? Because you can't just like figure out social trust and then add it in as another variable control for or can you?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's what makes it very hard because, you know, there's two there's two pieces that make this difficult. First is if you want to know, you know, the reason pollsters wait, like polling, the methodology behind polling has not changed very much in the last 80 years. You know, the basic regime that most of these high quality public pollsters do, you know, is that they call uh, they call a bunch of people, they ask them stuff like age and race and gender um, and education. I think it's, it's actually usually just those things. Um, and then they weight the results up to the census because the census will tell you, you know, the racial demographics of any state or any congressional district. Uh, and then they they just do, they apply some weights to make it representative. And then that's it. That's, that's kind of their product. And- you know, the problem is that once you start saying, oh, well, we need to adjust for things like social trust or we need to adjust for, you know, whether whether or not people have volunteered or, you know, like all of this other stuff, it becomes very hard. Like, how do you know what percentage of likely voters in Ohio's 13th congressional district trust their neighbors? It's not a trivial problem. It's actually hard. And then I think the other problem is more subtle, which is if you the, – the, the traditional business model of polling is that you go in and you survey, like, 700 people – and if you're waiting on four or five things, then sure, you can wait, you, you, can, you can do that. But if you want to wait on 20 things, then suddenly you have this combinatorical explosion uh, and traditional method, the traditional methods don't work anymore. And, you know, then you have to start using machine learning and modeling and you need to both survey more people, which, you know, isn't really consistent with their business model. And you need to use more sophisticated methods, which isn't isn't their traditional labor mix. And so it's very it's it'll be very hard. It's like the reason why we've seen the same polling error happen three times in a row is that these pollsters business models aren't consistent with the kind of met uh, with the kind of work and methods you need in order to do this stuff correctly like you know where you can where you can effectively control for dozens of covariates and you know survey tons of people like you need to have machine learning engineers and big proprietary databases and all of this stuff and that that's not something that like a random university can just throw together
0: yeah and and so if you want to control for more variables you just need to increase your sample size right well
1: you need to increase your sample size um but the a bigger thing is that you need to start fitting models uh cuz you know the basic The basic idea, the intuition here, is that, you know, you should only wait on a thing if it's correlated with partisanship. And so, you know, there are like these machine learning methods where basically you decide where you do this dimensionality reduction. where You say, oh, I have these 30 variables trying to wait on 30 variables, even if you have a million people is like with getting is actually like combinatorically a hard problem. And so you yeah. have to do machine learning to kind of reduce the dimensionality of these spaces and uh, to stuff that's correlated with your variables so that you can navigate the bias variance trade off. I'm being a little too technical here, uh, more <laughs> more intelligently. Uh, but yeah, there, there are cutting edge methods here, um, you know, but... It involves pretty sophisticated stuff. Like at my old shop at Citus, you know, we had like 14 machine learning engineers, um, folks who had come from Google. We were using TensorFlow Probability and things like variational autoencoders and GANs. Um, you know, the basic story here is that polling has just gotten a lot harder, both because because response rates have gone down by a lot. And I think it's an interesting story because technology is supposed to make things easier. Uh, but in this case, it's made things a lot harder because in the old days, like the old, in the old days, things were really boring. Uh, like I was just watching about how the Zodiac, you know, uh, Zodiac killers, like cryptic thing, you know, ciphers had been cracked yeah. and I was, he was watching a documentary and there are all these people who were just solving ciphers. And I was just like, Oh man, no wonder cell phone response, phone response rates were so high back then. People were just sitting home bored, like staring at puzzles. Uh, And, you know, people would just be like, oh, wow, you know, uh, a researcher wants to know my views on contemporary events. Uh, Lucky me. We don't live in that world anymore. The world's a lot more interesting. There's a lot more demands on people's time. um, And and so it's a lot harder to get people's attention. And more than that, I think that we've reached a point where the sheer act of answering a phone survey is like an act of self-expression, where, you know... About 95% of people who answer phone surveys end up voting. And even among the people who say they're definitely not going to vote when you ask them, 75% of those people actually end up voting. So you're talking about an incredibly weird set of folks and so you can say, oh, well, we just won't use phones anymore. We're going to move to the to online surveys. But the people in online surveys are super weird, too. An enormous num- number of them are on disability. They're self-employed. Um, there are bots. Like, it's actually, there is no unbiased source of information. And uh, that's why you have to both collect a lot more data and do a lot more modeling. Uh, and it's just a, it's a super hard problem.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's... Uh... I've heard you talk about this a a few times now, and it it just seems like something. Yeah, I don't really know how to solve it. Um, And I don't think the Democratic Party does either.
1: Yeah, Uh, I will say it's something that fills me with a lot of existential terror as someone whose job is to, you know, try to get elections right. Uh, Because, you know, I think 2016 and also 2020 can just show that you can have a methodology that works, but then the world will change under you. Mm -hmm. Like Donald Trump will go will show up and make all of these low trust voters, you know, switch their votes or COVID happens. And suddenly all these Democrats are cooped up inside. And that's the thing that's so scary is that you can have something that works and then it could suddenly not work due to something entirely outside of your control. Uh, And and so it's it's all it's a very hard problem, but it's very important. Uh, Measurement is extremely important. Uh, Like the Clinton campaign chose the wrong messages and chose the wrong campaign and a fascist ended up, you know, uh, taking over the country. And that all happened in part. And actually I think in really large part to improper uh, survey methods. And so this is just something that we have to get right, even though it's, it's very difficult.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to come back to this when we talk about like what policies Democrats can pursue and, and using polling to inform that. Um, but I want to switch gears right now into the primary and relitigating uh, fights that, lefties and and uh, people who are, I guess, partisans uh, like to fight about. And I just, I'll ask these two questions. Do you think uh, Bernie would have won in 2016 and in 2020 if he had been the general election nominee?
1: I think I'm very confident that Bernie would have won in 2016. Um, when it comes to 2020, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm less sure. Uh, you know, we ended up winning at the tipping point state by something like 0.3%. Uh, and, you know, I, I think Bernie was polling to, you know, just to show my biases, I, I voted for Bernie both in twenty sixteen and twenty twenty. But I think the two competing points I think you can make is if you just look at the public polling, you know, Bernie underperformed Biden by you know something like zero point six or zero point seven percent. So if you just naively apply that uniform swing to the results, we uh, would have we would have lost. I think that the countervailing point is that there were, uh, I think there's a couple, you know, one is that I think that Bernie did better than Biden among kind of exactly these younger, lower trust survey respondents who weren't answering surveys. And so it's possible that, you know, public polls were underestimating his general strength in some way. And I think it's also possible that, uh, Bernie would have had a, a map that was less correlated with education, um, and maybe that would have shrunk the electoral college bias. Uh, and I think the third point is you could argue that maybe Bernie would have uh, created a little bit more message discipline, you know, from the left, um, just because you know he would have had a little bit more authority um, to enforce it. I think the flip side of that is that if you look at if you look at how we won, I think that. You know, we saw a situation where we did worse with non-whites and about the same with non-college whites. And the only people who really changed their votes were these kind of more affluent college educated whites who were exactly the group that uh, Bernie underperformed with. And so it's kind of a, it's a hard, it's a hard question, you know, in retrospect, if I could like go and push a button and do it again, I'm, I'm not sure what I would do. Um, but if I had to put a number on it, my guess is probably 40% odds that um, that Bernie could would have won. But there's like a lot of tail risk, you know, we might have seen a capital strike, there might have been a lot of Indonesian uh, fighting. But I think the case for 2016 is much, much clearer, um, which is that, you know, one, Hillary Clinton was the second most unpopular person to ever run for public office other than Donald Trump himself. And you know, I think there's uh, a lot of reasons, you know, like that unpopularity is probably tied up in uh, sexism in a lot of ways. I think if you actually look at the time series, it looks like it really was driven by kind of Benghazi and some of these email scandals. I think it's kind of underrated um, how much those things um, worked through and the extended primary also probably didn't help. But she was exceptionally unpopular. And I think that there was a lot of motivated reasoning where they just said, oh, it's unpopular. It's impossible to have popular candidates now with all of this polarization. And I think Biden really proved that wrong. You know, I think he ended up ending the election at being like plus four or plus five while Hillary Clinton, I don't remember the exact number, but it was something like minus 15. Um, in and terms so,
0: of favorability.
1: Yeah, in terms of favorability. Uh, and so, you know, just mechanically, like if you, if you do regressions, like you can actually, uh, if you do a regression on like the last... I don't know, 13 presidential elections, and you just have a three variable model where you just have the economy and the incumbent favorability and the um, challenger favorability. You actually, even though it's three variables, like 13, 14 data points, it's still actually, it ends up looking very reasonable. And if you just plug something like that in, if Hillary had been about a replacement level Democrat, I think we would have done about one and a half to two percent better and then I think we would have fairly easily won you know Hillary Clinton got about 51.1 percent of the two-party vote and she would have needed 51.6 in order to win so uh, saying saying nothing else if you just replaced Hillary with a with a, another candidate at random you probably would have done better and Bernie Sanders was not A candidate at random. At that time, he was the most popular politician in America. If you go back and look at his favorability ratings, and it was crazy, plus 20, plus 30, like absolutely wild. And, you know, uh, obviously, he would have gotten less popular. But the reality is that that takes time, there's a speed limit on how quickly that can happen. And so I think if you plop him in, he probably would have done you know you know the, the goal he would have not become the second most unpo- he, would, he wouldn't have become the most unpopular Democrat to ever run uh, and I think the other piece is I think that there's a lot of evidence that Bernie Sanders did better in polling among non-college whites and worse with college whites in relative terms and that's exactly the trade-off that you want to see from an electoral college perspective so I'm you know pretty confident you know that he would have won in 2016. You know the problem is that in the resulting four in the resulting four years he became less popular, um, and that's you know that that's that's kind of the problem. I I, I think that a real lesson in politics. I mean, one I, I, if you look at why I think he got less popular, I think there's a very similar story to Corbyn, where. Uh, you have this left-wing insurgent who like goes through and attacks the system and shows an enormous amount of ideological constraint and messaging restraint, uh, and then does unexpectedly well. Uh, and then I think the people around both Corbyn and Sanders took this as a sign that there's this... Uh, market for unrepentant uh, socialism. And then that messaging restraint and ideological constraint constra- uh, restraint kind of goes away. And so, you know, both Corbin and Sanders then moved pretty far to the left in terms of, you know, what policies they proposed, how much they shied away from talking about politics. I think that in both cases, there was this real perceived need to be more woke in messaging because um, uh, they, they, you know, they saw in response to intra-left criticism and uh, as a result, you know, they both ended up losing an enormous amount of working class support in the Democratic primary and in the next um, uh, general, you know, British general election.
0: Yeah. One argument I've seen is that some portion of Bernie's base in 2016 are people who are like white working class voters who ended up going with Trump in the general and then just kind of never came back. Um, they identified as a Trump voter and then like they were vilified in, in the media and the culture. Um, and then Bernie's talking about how Trump is like the most dangerous president we've ever had and like really playing up like his opposition to Trump. Uh, do you think there's any evidence for that?
1: It's the Michael Tracy story. Um, uh, I mean, I think it's definitely, it's definitely true that, uh, some of that happened on the margins that some of these vote like the, that working class white voters, left the party and stopped voting in these Democratic Party primaries. And I I, I think that that's part of that. And that's something that's hard to avoid. But I do think it's worth, you know, just looking at the margins, you know, I I think that Bernie Sanders probably got something like 60 or 70% of the working class white vote in, uh, in 2016. And, you know, got something like I don't know, in a two way against Biden, probably something like 30% um, in 2020. Uh, and so, you know, some of this is some ideological sorting. And I think that there's a real, I think there is a real point that, that the, like, I, I, I twist his point into a different thing, which is that Bernie started as being very popular. And I think regardless of the composition of the Democratic primary electorate, I think the question is, why did he stop becoming super popular? And I think some of that is gravity. You know, like the reality of politicians is that they just get less popular once they get in the public eye. And that's why successful political movements cycle through different leaders once they get stale. And I think that's something you could very rightly criticize the Democratic Party for not doing with, with some of our leadership. Um, uh, but I think part of it is if you present yourself as a partisan Democrat. Uh, which is, I think, what Sanders tried to do, you know, in a lot of ways to win more intraparty support. Yeah, that, that's going to harm your ability to be seen as outside the party and beyond the fray. But I also, you know, would really stress. I, I, I think I think that the ideological aspects of it, um, and the branding aspects of it, were very real. You know, one of the examples I really like to talk about is that a you know yard signs in 2016 said, you know, paid for paid for by the people, not the billion, not the millionaires and billionaires. And then in 2020, it was like solidarity forever. And you know, I think you can build a coalition around trying you know attacking the system as unfair and tilted toward the rich and trying and proposing that things should be better uh, but I think that there's a lot less of a market for uh, you know left-wing identity politics um, which is what a lot of you know, I think ended up, a lot of that ended up expressing like you know for, for what like I think a lot of what I like I try to say when I critique you know the Democratic Party is I just say that you know the people who work in democratic politics they're all rich they're disproportionately white they're all young they're all highly educated they went to elite schools and so they don't really have that much in common in terms of values or other things with, um, with regular working class people and it's a real problem but the flip side of that is that left-wing activists are even more weird and even more disconnected you know from the median voter even if ideologically you know they, 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 they might want to you know uh, they, they value working class voters more highly and so I think that there's a real story there which is that, you know, the median voter in a general election is 50 years old. And in a primary election, it's 58 years old. And these are people who don't have college degrees. And the reality is that old people without college degrees don't have an enormous appetite for radical change. Uh, I think that they might agree with the idea that the system is unfair. um, And they might agree with, you know, on making... Incremental improvements, but you know, as someone who really identifies as a socialist, I voted for Bernie twice. I really, I really want radical policy change. I think, in order to, you want to make things sound as reasonable as possible. Uh, And I think that you know, in, in our space, there's a big incentive to do the opposite of that and uh, embrace the radicalism uh, that exists in young activists when the median voter is is substantially older.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is like a a common thing, right? Like within an activist community, you get social points for being like as radical and and forthright and bold in your proclamations as possible. Um, But like successful politics is the opposite of edgy, right? You want it to be palatable to people. And like, there's some framing of this where people say like, you know, it's not moderate to go like bomb countries overseas and like support health insurance companies that like gouge people and prevent them from getting life-saving treatments. Like that's like not a moderate position, the the moderate position is like end the forever war and support Medicare for all. Um, Is is that the type of like framing that you think would be effective?
1: You know, I, I think that, I think that there are very real policy constraints that exist. You know, people are, I think, very rightly afraid, for example, of being thrown into a government healthcare system against their will. I think it's not a crazy thing. Like, I, I personally, I mean, I guess I support single-payer. I think single-payer is kind of a neoliberal sellout alternative to having an N- NHS, you know, the government should be building hospitals. Um, yeah. You know, uh, uh, but I, I think I, I, you like, it seems very reasonable for, to me for someone to go the government can't even build a website Well, wow, I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to trust them with my, with my healthcare. And, you know, I think there's a real, and so I think this really plays into program design and policy details where if you feel like you're giving people options and maybe it is the wrong podcast to say this, but that seems a lot less scary to people. If you say, Oh, you know, we, would you like the option to be in, in be in this, uh, to be able to buy into Medicaid or buy into Medicare, um, people and, Oh, and you could even, you know, make it very, very, very cheap or free. People really like that. It's very popular. But if you tell people, I'm going to, uh, I'm, I'm, we're just going to abolish private insurance and move everyone into the, you know, into a government run thing, people then get, you know, really concerned. Uh, and I think the other big impediment, and this is like a very real constraint, you know, on, on progressive policy, is that taxes are are really unpopular. You know, like we tried, and I think people don't come to terms with this enough. Like we tried to pass single payer in Vermont. You know, we had a democratic governor who was super on board. We had a legislature that was super on board and they tried to do it. And the basic problem is that this formula of raise your payroll taxes by 8% and then zero out premiums, like it might be true in an actuarial sense, that people will come out ahead or most people will come out ahead, but it's not something that people actually believe it doesn't work. Like it couldn't, it didn't even work in Vermont and people will say, Oh, it's because you can't implement it in one state. But like, you know, maybe if it was federal, it would be an 8% tax instead of a 10% tax. But like people just don't, like middle class tax increases are just exceptionally unpopular, and I think the important aspect of how Europe did it, because these laws of physics are—I mean, you know—not physics, but these these, these rules are, are worked there too, is that in Europe, they in the post war era, uh, one healthcare was just much cheaper, and so as a percentage of GDP, and so the amount of tax increases you would need in order to fund uh, healthcare were a lot lower, and the second piece. Is that? Uh, and let me just turn my video off since it's getting dark. Sorry. Uh, and the second piece is that they had bats, uh that were implemented immediately in the post-war era uh, because so they value had added tax. yeah value-added taxes because they they really needed uh, they needed a lot of uh, revenue due to balance of payments issues, and so that's a political economy ask like if if a country didn't have single payer in Europe right now. And then they needed to raise, you know, payroll taxes by 8%. It wouldn't work. And I think that gets to like a real policy constraint, which is if you look at how Europe pays for things, you know, they have these high middle-class tax increases and they have uh, value-added tax taxes and then they also have high taxes on the rich. And only one of those three things is like, Electorally feasible in the U.S., even in the bluest states, um, and you know I, I think that you can get around that with accounting gimmicks. You know, like I think Medicare buy-in is an accounting gimmick where you're just pretending that the premiums they pay aren't taxes, um, but it they, they're actually very important. Uh, and, and I, you know, I, I think we we can't if you ignore these tripwires and propose these programs that have uh, that involve large middle class tax increases. Then you you won't you won't win. Like we have a Republican governor in Vermont right now, <laughs> and I, I think it just shows there isn't this uh, appetite for transformational change. I think that you can create like y- you can take your goal and you can make slight tweaks to avoid these tripwires. And I think there's also intelligent stuff you can do on the margin, like you know something that Matt Brunig has been pushing, which I think really kind of comes from Rudolf Meidner from Sweden, is that there are things you can do to reduce inequality that don't involve massive tax increases. You know, worker co-determination both pulls well and doesn't cost anything. You know, more exotically, the government could capture a pretty high percentage of capital income by having the Fed do counter-cyclical spending, uh, sorry, counter-cyclical counter asset purchases, uh, you know, uh, of, of uh, in the stock market. Or, you know, the government could. They borrow at 0%. If you were a hedge fund that could borrow at 0%, you would borrow at 0% and buy a fuck ton of equities. And you, you could actually capture pretty non-trivial shares of GDP using this kind of, this kind of non-conventional uh, revenue uh, model. But that's the direction you kind of have to go. I, I, I just don't think it's, like we're not gonna replicate the traditional social democratic model that we see in Europe in the United States anytime soon. And you can see that because there's nothing stopping California or New York state or Vermont, you know, from implementing this high tax, high service model using the traditional pathways. And, and so, you know, I don't think that's a right wing take. I think saying, oh, instead of doing tax and transfer liberalism, we should empower workers or we should, uh, it's like a left wing take, uh, or, you know, we should try to increase, you know, the public share of capital income. Like, I think that's a very left wing take. And I think it's, but that's the direction you kind of have to go. I think that, you know, the current upset, you know, the current approach of focusing on things like Medicare for all and things that have these giant explicit tax bills. Um, that's, it's, it's I, I'm skeptical that you can put together a coalition for that.
0: Yeah, I guess to defend Medicare for all, I, I think on the options framing, you can frame it like, you know, right now you can only go to a doctor or a hospital that's in your network, but under Medicare for all, you could go to any doctor, or any hospital you want and not have any bill at the end of the day. Um, and so like, I, I think that freedom and perceptions of freedom are really important in American politics, um, mm-hmm. like left-wing social democratic projects and, and beyond actually increase individual freedom at the workplace with your health um, and so on. And, and so I think like just messaging that appropriately, um, you know, the government takeover framing versus like, Hey, Medicare is really popular and people like having it, um, uh, just expand that, you know, like the same policy idea frame different ways in, in polling can lead to like very large swings in support.
1: I, I think that's right. Um, but I think that what you really need is you need some kind of optionality uh, so that people aren't freaked out. Uh, I think people are, are really like, I, I think if you say, you know, for example, should the government set up postal blanking or broadband, like, you know, this, this stuff can pull about 50, um, but there needs, like, I think, people have a lot of skepticism toward government's ability to do things competently. Uh, yeah. and you know, th- this is the, this is kind of the contradiction. Like I think, you know, Bernie Sanders did a very good job of putting together a coalition, especially in 2016 that appeals to these, you know, low trust, uh, low trust working class people who are the future of American politics. You know, I, I think pe- social trust levels, are highly correlated with age, in that younger people have much lower levels of social trust than older people, and it's decreasing, you know, every every year. And so the future of American politics is trying to come up with uh, an agenda and like a that appeal and a and rhetoric that appeals to these people who don't trust government and who don't trust the pe- you know, other people. Uh, and I think that you can, I think you can pitch left wing ideas in doing that. But I think that when you do those things, both one, it pushes against these kind of traditional Clintonian complex technocratic programs. You know, I think one of Bernie Sanders' best things was just saying we're going to make college free, period, uh, as opposed to you know these weird, you know, public-private, you know, these weird government-state uh, uh, means-tested things. And, and so I think that's that's there. But it also means confronting that people are really afraid of getting put into a government program against their control. And I think. And also, you know, confronting the tax bill, which is like one of the one of the bigger um, problems with uh, Medicare for all politically. But I do think, you know, the particular variant where we just said, "Oh, yeah, we're going to ban private health insurance" was insane because there's private health insurance in in the UK. You know, like even single payer healthcare companies have private supplemental insurance. Like I think in Germany, um, something like well, not that's the wrong example, but I think in um, in, in most countries with single payer, something like 20% of people have like some kind of uh, supplemental insurance. And so, you know, we ended up to picking kind of the most radical and most edgy um, version of what we wanted to do. And I think if we want to look at future things, you know, making making it so that people don't feel trapped um, and working with people's distrust in government is going to be key. I think that you can still create a left-wing agenda in those constraints, but you just have to be creative.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Ugh, fuck. It's like, <laughs> just i don't know i i think you know i i want you to be wrong um you know i i want like medicare for all to be as popular as is is often asserted that it is um and i think depending on how it's polled, um depending on like how the question is framed like you get really different answers um but it's also like beyond it being popular like even if it had like 70 or 80 percent support um The idea that like the Democrats are going to get a trifecta and then overcome, you know, the health insurance lobby and overcome the AMA and like all these institutions, um, just makes it very hard to see this happening. And I saw Medicare for all as like a rallying cry and like a way to mobilize the base, but like not realistically something that was going to happen, even if Bernie did win and the Senate and the house were still democratic, um, but I, I do I do want to cover some other stuff uh, and and not get too bummed out. But this might just make people a bit uh, angry instead.
1: <laughs> um,
0: so there's this argument I think from like some of the more cynical members of the left, uh myself sometimes included, that top Democrats don't really want to win. Um, like they, they want to keep their seat, but they don't necessarily want to like win all the keys to power. Um, like obviously, like I think like Biden and Clinton like wanted to win the presidency. Um, But Pelosi, without the Senate, doesn't have to actually legislate. She can just fundraise off of, like, insane things that Republicans do and say. Um, You've worked in Democratic politics for a while now. Do you think this is true?
1: Oh, um, yeah, Democrats absolutely want to win. Like, working in the campaign world, I think something that's been really striking to me is even though ideology asserts itself, you know, implicitly, everybody just really wants to win. Uh, Like, I think Chuck Schumer would have killed, killed people to like, he, he really wanted to be a uh, Senate majority leader. And I think Nancy Pelosi, you know, really wants to pass laws. I mean, it just kind of comes down to, and this is one of my biggest disagreements with people on the left is that Democratic elected officials, m- the vast majority of them are incredibly liberal people, Uh, you know, like, I think there's in a real sense, you know, Nancy Pelosi is to the left of easily 90% of the American public, uh, you know, under any ideological scaling regime. And I think that all these groups really do want to pass laws. And I'll just say, you know, someone who's, you know, talked with, you know, some of these people is I, I do think they really want to win. I think, you know, the problem is that, you know, one, doing things in this country is really hard. Uh, We have all of these structural biases. And so you need to win very large majorities in order to do anything and it's super fucked up. Uh, And then I think the other piece is that the actual mechanics of winning elections is a very difficult problem. And I'm super happy. I've been a big critic of how the Clinton campaign, uh, the strategic decisions they made. And I think You know, I think you can say that for mainstream Democrats, but I also think if you look at the 2020 election results and also the 2018 election results, honestly, I don't think it's true that leftist activists know any better how to win. You know, I I, I think, you know, in general, um, left-wing candidates uh, generally underperformed, um, more centrist ones. And that doesn't mean that... uh, both sets of people, both sets of groups don't make mistakes. But I think that winning elections, you know, big picture is about talking about things that people care about and taking the right position on these things that people care about. And I think that both, this, both liberals and the left have shown a lack of discipline in doing those two things. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of Complicated political economy reasons for why these things happen. Uh, I, I think, honestly, the biggest thing that I think it all comes down to is this problem that kind of educated liberal white people have an enormous amount who live in cities. They just have an enormous amount of disproportionate power. They're much more likely to donate, they're much more likely to staff these campaigns. And they're Uh, And they're much more likely to work in media. They're much more likely to be writers. They're much more likely to be the people who go and uh, book who's on MSNBC. And I think that that shifts our priorities away from what working class people care about. I think every single person, you know, really wanted, uh, like, I think Nancy Pelosi and, and Chuck Schumer and Bernie Sanders and AOC, like all of them would have preferred for Democrats to take the Senate uh and be able to pass laws but i think that on a day-by-day basis it's very hard to uh to actually do message discipline like you know one of my favorite examples and this is attacking liberals and not the left is that you know democrats understood for most of the 2000s that gun control was a losing issue and bernie sanders himself you know was was pro-gun up until he ran for president um which you know i think you know was was the right move for him given, given vermont um But after Sandy Hook happened, it was very hard just as a human to not turn around and say, we're going to we're going to we're going to change the conversation. We're going to go against this. We're going to try to pass gun control legislation Uh, because, you know, that's where people that's how that's the bias that I think people people like us ended up having. And message discipline involves standing up to that sort of thing um, and focusing. And I think it's really emotionally unsatisfying. And I I think this gets to the core problem, which is I think that people who work in politics really want politics to be this thing where you just go out and you fight for what you believe in and then you win. And that's not actually what politics is you know politics is a series of emotionally unsatisfying compromises you know where you have to persuade kind of retrograde um racist white people to um to support you uh to to vote your vote your policy and like trick them into 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 voting so to improve their own lives and it's like very i think it's very unsatisfying but you know something that i i think a lot about is just looking at the history of post-war europe where I think that there were a lot of very smart, very left-wing people, you know, who studied Marx and identified as Marxists, who looked at the electorate as it was and had and made a bunch of compromises, you know, branding compromises, policy compromises, symbolic compromises in order to build these larger welfare states. And I think that, you know, that's, that's a hard thing to do, but it's, it's, it's the path forward. But I think importantly, I don't think that, I think that the left and liberals are both kind of equally guilty of this, Um, and you know, the solution isn't, we have to listen to everything that, uh, Abigail Spanberger says, or man, we need to shut AOC up. Like, I don't, I don't think that's right. Um, I think just even empirically, um, but I think that you need both groups of people to focus on popular things that working class people care about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I think looking into other countries and also to American history, you know, like The New Deal was a successful program, both in helping people materially and then also like shifting uh, American politics to the left and and creating this like very sustainable coalition for Democrats for for decades. Um, And I don't know, I guess like I sort of had this fantasy that Bernie could have been that kind of figure um, repolarizing American politics along class lines. Uh, and focusing less on, like, cultural issues that are less popular and more on material issues that that help people more. Um, But I I think it's just going to be, like, a a real slog in pursuing these, like, structural changes to, like, you know, statehood for D.C. and Puerto Rico, getting rid of the electoral college, um, court packing rotations. Like, I I just don't see how we get to any kind of meaningful uh, progressive legislation without that stuff.
1: I mean, I I agree with that. Um, But I I, I think that the big challenge of our time – you know, in order to reduce these structural biases, like we, in order to pass those things, we have to win a majority in the first place. And the only, like, and I think people just don't realize how bad these structural biases are right now. Like with the Senate, the Senate is like very much designed to keep our coalition out of power. We would need to get something like 54% of the vote every for three cycles in a row in order for us to be able to have a Senate majority. Uh, And... That's something that's just, frankly, not possible. And so the challenge, the only way we can address this and get to a point where we can fix these structural problems is if we can change our coalition to bring in working-class people again. Because uh, if we don't do that, we're not going to be able to pass anything, structural or not. And so the big challenge of our time is how do we reorient and get support from working-class white voters again? And I think the Bernie 2016 model is really appealing of extreme message discipline. Every question someone asks you, you deflect and talk about the millionaires and billionaires. And, you know, I think there's, I think it's a great, it's a great great thing, uh, but I also, you know, but there's other pieces. Like if you look at how FDR did it or how LBJ did it, was they had to show a lot of ideological constraint. Now the, the country was much more retrograde back then. And so a lot of these compromises that LBJ had to make or that FDR had to make were quite hard. But I think that for us, you know, the country is much more educated than it used to be. And so it's, uh, we just have to go back to the level of for the the ways of talking about immigration, the ways of talking about race, the ways of talking about gender that like Barack Obama did, which frankly, I don't think was, was that right wing. I'm not saying that, you know, we need to create some, you know, um, red brown alliance, we don't need to go anywhere near that far. Um, but I think that, we have to show the same kind of constraint that Bernie Sanders showed in 2016, and that he was very much criticized for. Uh, and I, I think that in response to that criticism, he kind of had to go in the other direction. But I think it, he, I think that what he did, like I was, you know, personally very excited. You know, I remember I, I went out to I went to Iowa to knock doors uh, in 2016, and you know, I remember when the votes were being counted. That was like honestly the most hopeful I've been about American politics. I think in the last like eight years. Um, And I think it's a real template and it's not something that the left should abandon, uh, but it involves going back to the old Bernie left, as opposed to, I think the direction that the left is going in right now, which uh, I think is is a little bit different.
0: And and so to summarize that the old Bernie left being emphasizing issues of economics and class and maybe de-emphasizing issues of like identity uh, and, and like racial politics. Yeah. I think, like, the
1: challenge, the left can can be a real asset, I think, to the Democratic Party if it can reinforce the branding that Democrats care about working people and helping the poor and making the system more fair. And I think that that's... Uh, there's been a lot of movement, you know, I I mean, people deride that as class first leftism. And, you know, I'm not saying that you have to, that means you have to do a bunch, you have to, that doesn't mean you have to be racist. It doesn't even mean that you have to change your policies. But I think everything we can do, uh, because, you know, we also are faced with a corporate media, and I don't want, I'm not conspiratorial about this, but the media environment we live in is that the people who decide what go on television are all highly affluent, um, high, uh, you know, richer people who care a lot about social issues, and that means that we have to do literally everything we can to tilt against that and fill in those gaps. You know, when we're giving speeches, when we're at debates, like whenever we have a microphone, we have to do everything we can to reinforce this idea that Democrats care about working people, that Democrats want to make things more fair, or the left wants, you know, or or the left wants to do these things, or that liberals want to do these things, because um, it. It, it matters a lot. And I think that that stuff has is, is kind of fallen out of fashion a little bit, you know, in, le, in in left-wing... Like, I think Bernie kind of brought it back, but I think it's it's kind of fallen out of fashion, you know, in the last couple of years.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, there's polling on uh, the breakdown of negotiations about uh, coronavirus relief. And people, like, roughly equally blame Horsey um, and McConnell um, for you know, talks breaking down and like the reality is that Democrats were trying to get people aid and McConnell was trying to block it. Um, and I feel like that's just something more people should know, right? Like that, hey, Democrats are trying to get you more checks in the mail, trying to get you better unemployment insurance. Um, Republicans are trying to make it so employers can't be sued for killing their workers by making them work through coronavirus. Like, it seems like a very winning message. And it's kind of like a self, uh, an own goal on the Democrats for not making that like more salient.
1: If you, if Joe Biden goes and gives a speech, there's, even if 90% of it is economic content or legitimate attacks on Republicans for you know the bad things that they're doing, whether it's trying to make it so that employers can uh, not have liability or whether it's how Donald Trump is making it easier to pollute rivers. Like there's just, uh, there's a ton of stuff that Republicans want to do that's exceptionally unpopular. But I think that the media is not, going to cover those things like even if there's a one or two minute segment where they make fun of trump or they say something that kind of fits more into how socially what makes socially liberal rich people excited about politics that's the piece they're going to go with and the only way around that is to have extreme message discipline it's something people really complained about Bernie Sanders for that no matter what you asked him, he just pivoted to the, you know, talking point, the five talking points that he wanted. And I think that's something that, you know, Barack Obama, who, you know, I think both of them were excellent politicians, uh, was really famous for in 2016. I remember I worked on, you know, not 2016, 2012, I actually worked on the 2012 campaign. And there were basically the there was this core message frame, which was this idea that, a fam, you know, if you're a family who works hard uh, and has a full-time job and plays by the rules, you should be able to get ahead. That would probably piss off Matt Brunig, but you know that was that was the uh, that was the talking point. Once you knew that talking point, you and once you started watching TV, you realized, wow, the entire Democratic Party is basically just repeating the sentence again and again. Uh, you have to basically never go off message if you want, you know, in order to defeat this adversarial media, and I. You know, I think that's, uh, that's how you win. I think that, you know, the other piece is trying to create some alternatives, um, to uh, traditional media that focus on working people. But I think that's the, that's the core problem is we have to do everything we can to associate Democrats with popular policies and Republicans with unpopular policies. Uh, and doing that in practice involves having a lot of discipline and making some sacrifices.
0: Yeah. And, I guess I just want to end on uh, – I think we're talking a lot about, like, how Democrats can win elections more. And I think, like, whether that's even a desirable thing or a the best way to get to, like, meaningful change that helps the most people is, like, a different conversation. Um, I, I think that, like, I'm really not a fan of the Democratic Party as it stands now. Um, but, like, the Republican Party is a death cult that is trying to, like, destroy – so many things of value and, and has ruined so many lives and will continue to do so as long as they hold power. Um, and so the Democrats are the, the only thing that really stand between us and that. Um, so I, I support Democrats winning elections, even if I think like the individual candidate is not very good, you know, very good. Like Joe Biden was like my, probably my last choice in the primary. Um, but I still prefer him winning than Trump winning. Um, and like, you know, this is, of some controversy within some parts of the left, but you know, setting that aside, um, we talked a lot about like, yeah, how, how they can win elections, which policies are popular. But then if you think that something is right, uh, but is not currently popular, like, you know, prison abolition uh, or, or police abolition, like you think that's actually like the policy that will help the most people. And like, is the best way to get to like a just society. Like wh- what do you recommend people do? Um, like how, what's the best way to change hearts and minds on this um, and make it su- such that, the political environment changes to the point where that policy is actually feasible?
1: Yeah. You know, it's a it's a great question. So I, I think, you know, the, the, the main point uh is that there's really you need to divide the electorate into partisans and swing voters. And they they interact with politicians very differently. Where hard partisans take they they vote for the party because of their values. Uh, and it's funny, I think it's something you really hear a lot, you know, in liberal circles is people say, Oh, you know, Democrats talk too much about issues and, you know, not enough about our values, but it's actually the opposite. We have very alien values from the median the median voter. Uh, and they just, they vote for us because they agree with us on some issues. And so I, I think when you look at how like partisans pick the issues, to a large extent, on the basis of values. And you can see this, like Democrats used to be against free trade, and then Obama endorses free trade, and suddenly all the Democrats change. And on the Republican side, there's a bunch of examples of people switching back and forth too. like partisanship is, a, you know, they associate with these parties because of these kind of tribal allegiances of, you know, the values they see around the world. But swing voters aren't like that. If swing voters were like that, then they would... Uh, they would already be partisans uh, and, and they're not. And so you see this dynamic where when a party embraces a th- an unpopular thing, then you can boost it in the polls, you know, abolishing ICE probably was at like 10%. And then liberals like did a big push, and then it went up to 30%. And that's like, very powerful. Um, You know, like defund the defunding the police is a lot more popular in surveys uh, than it was, you know, than it would have been a year ago. And so it's really tempting to say, Oh, wow, you know, that's what we want. But you know, the problem is that you're not changing the minds of swing voters, and the swing voters just vote for the other party, you know, when you embrace an unpopular thing. And I think if you look at the real success stories of the last, you know, 20 to 30 years, you know, gay, gay marriage, mar- marijuana legalization, you know, the death penalty, people don't talk about this as much, but it's been support for abolishing the death penalty has been increasing at a pretty linear clip for the last 15 years. And honestly, I think in the next five years, it'll probably cross 50 and, and that'll change the politics of this issue a lot. Um like if you look at those changes, like nobody—it's not nobody really wants to go from ten percent to thirty percent. You want to go from ten percent to seventy percent, um, because then you can you can create cultural hegemony, and the other side, you know, even agrees with you. Uh, and you know, the question is how you do that. And I think the answer is that, tr- you know, the primary tool that you see in the political sphere is trying to get politicians to embrace unpopular ideas. And I think that that's both electorally counterproductive and also counterproductive just to the goal. Um, You know, like if you look at gay marriage polling over time, you know, starting in 1993, it started linearly increasing. And it's, I I think it's underappreciated how weird this graph is like support for, you know, liberal attitudes on homosexuality were pretty much constant, you know, for, really across the 1970s and 1980s. And then there was this inflection point in 1983, and you started linearly increasing. And the only interruption of this linear trend was 2004, which is when, you know, activists made it a big issue and it became part of the presidential campaign. And then you saw this decline in support, you know, basically because you saw this um, polarization where, you know, right leaning swing voters um, who might have been sympathetic turned against it. Um, So I think what you want is how do you get that inflection point that happened in 1993 and, you know, I think you can tell a story, and this is actually, I think, really backed up by some very cool empirical evidence that, like, the turning point in 1983 was that uh, a newspaper, I think it was USA Today, or it might have been the AP feed, um, created a syndicated, uh, you know, gay uh gay issue um, or LGBT issue, basically a column about LGBT issues in the the community. And that was pretty widely read. And it was actually a really big deal. You know, the author who pioneered it actually just recently died. Um, But I think it tells the story of the way that you win is both one, there are these long term structural changes, they're good for the left, the country is getting more educated, the country is getting less secular. Um, And that changes the ground, you know, the landscape of what's you know, possible and what's not like immigration, for example, you know, increasing immigration levels is still unpopular. But now it's, you know, I think if you if you pull should immigration levels be increased or decreased, increasing is, you know, uh, I think only like three or 4% less popular than decreasing. And it used to be that the ratio was something like 10 to one, like if you go back to the 1990s, like only like 5% of people wanted to increase immigration levels, it was less popular than legalizing heroin. Uh, and you know, I think a big reason for that is, is basically that the country has just gotten a lot more educated and and a lot more cosmopolitan. And so there's more fertile ground for this stuff. But I think the second piece is this media consumption. You know, I I talk about how the average American voter is 50 years old and doesn't have a college degree, but they also watch five hours of television per day. It's actually higher You know, the median overall across the population is five hours for 50 year olds. It's something like six hours. So people are mostly, Interacting with, you know, getting most of their information from television. Uh, and so it tells you that getting your stuff into the media making a case for what you want, like, that's, that's how you do long term cultural change. And, you know, there are even papers that show that, like, you know, modern family seems like it increased support for gay marriage. And, Mm. you know, the presence of, you know, marijuana and movies, like increased uh, support for, you know, uh, marijuana legalization. And so, you know, I think that's great news, because the people who produce, you know, cultural production in this country are all incredibly, um, incredibly left wing people. And I think, you know, it's a bit more of a jump, but I think it shows like the left now has a lot of cultural power. You know, the people who work in media organizations, the people who produce television shows are all substantially more left-wing due to education polarization than they were 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Uh, And that creates a lot of power. Uh, And so I I think the answer is, you know, if you, if you want to make these things popular, I think you need to create favorable representations and slip them into media um, because that's where people, you know, get all of their information. I'm just, I think I'm just restating Gramsci, but I think that's, that's kind of how you do it.
0: Yeah. Uh, Pete Buttigieg said that would approve, I guess. <laughs> um, well, cool. I, I know we're a bit over and uh, you've been very generous with your time. I just want to ask like, where should people, what should people read? What should people do if they want to learn more about what we've talked about here? Um, and any final parting thoughts for the listener?
1: Yeah, no, um, well, I, I really appreciate the chance to have an audience. You know, this is this is the most left-wing podcast I've been on so far. And I'm excited to, you know, get to talk to leftists because I, I identify as leftists. In terms of things to follow, I really like, I think, the academic political science literature. I think it's really underrated for understanding the world. And so there's uh, Matt Grossman on Twitter. Uh, he's a political scientist at the University of Michigan. He basically tweets out, you know, interesting stuff. Uh, that I think is really relevant to a lot of these political questions that I talked about. And then, you know, I can always plug my own Twitter. I'm David Shore, S-H-O-R on Twitter. Um, oh, and if anyone has any questions, you know, listening to this, my DMs are open. So always happy to chat, answer any
0: questions. Cool. That's great. Um, yeah, I will put a link to your Twitter in the show notes, as well as Matt Grossman's. Um, but thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Pleasure to be here. This has been The Most Interesting People I Know. If you enjoy this show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. This helps new people find the podcast and validates my self-worth. If you don't enjoy the show, please keep your thoughts to yourself. Or email me at mostinterestingpeople27 at gmail.com. Music is by me. Podcast design is by Jacob Babrowitz.